0: You ready? I was born ready.
1: Welcome to an already contentious Advisory Opinions podcast. Moments before this podcast began, Sarah Isger, my co-host, launched an unprovoked attack on our producer, Caleb, <laughs> that included the words, hit record, you dum-dum.
2: <laughs> it's a term of endearment. <laughs> a ter-
1: okay, a term of endearment. We were having some mild technical difficulties to get started. And uh, through some, um, I don't know, technical magic that Sarah won't describe, we're, on, we're, we're now able to record.
2: Well, the technical so- difficulties were on my end, but you never know. They could re-technical difficult themselves. And so I was telling Caleb, like, start the recording before this all falls apart (laughs) mid-air.
1: Well, we've got a great podcast. We're going to talk briefly about um, post-debate polling. We're going to talk about how will Amy Coney Barrett shift the court. And then we're going to be joined by a special guest, Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute, who has written a new book, extremely timely. I don't think we got into this, Sarah, but he released his book on the exact same day that I released my book. Which kind They're of pretty
2: different books
1: they are pretty different, but it sort of makes us like the Sharks and the Jets west Side story uh, reference to of of book authors.
2: well, now I'm just disappointed we didn't do some good like snapping play it, cool boy
1: <laughs> exactly um, but before we dive in, um, just want to ask uh, ask folks, we've had some really great response um, in our request to rate our podcast uh, and subscribe to our podcast and I uh, want to make that ask right up front again. Go to Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars, please, and subscribe to this podcast feed. And also go to thedispatch.com. We are in the waning days of our... No, we're done. We're done, right? At the 30-day free trial. Oh, we still have some time. Producer Caleb still reeling from the... reeling. Caleb still reeling from the dum-dum comment is still <laughs> able to... Interject and and provide accurate timely information. So we have seven days left in the 30-day free free trial. And that uh, URL is thedispatch.com slash 30 days free. Correct. Yes, thank you. Um so please check us out, thedispatch.com. Um, but let's roll right into the post-debate phase. Sarah, we have some polling post-debate, more than one poll. You don't like to talk about just one poll, more than one poll. Um, And what is it all telling us?
2: Nothing matters anymore, David. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, okay. Overall, people who watch the debate think that Joe Biden won, though not by a lot. This wasn't, you know, some 80-20, but by and large, Joe Biden, quote-unquote, won the debate. That's what the polls are telling us. However, the polls are also telling us that that doesn't matter and that most people tuned in just to see how their preferred candidate did not to change their minds. So uh, why are you watching the debate from CBS? 73% to see how my candidate does. 41% for the entertainment. And boy, if that doesn't summarize the problems that we have. 8% it will be the only (laughs) thing on TV. True enough. And 6%, I'm still deciding who to vote for. And look, before you're like, ooh, 6%, that's actually pretty high. Um, maybe, but I would say that those that there's people out there who think they're still deciding who to vote for and, and truly believe that, but they are not actually still deciding who to vote for. So I take that 6% even with a grain of salt. Um, we also have how people felt about watching the debate. This is maybe my favorite. How did the debate make you feel? Annoyed 69%. Fair enough. Entertained 31%. Again, everything that's wrong with what's going on. Pessimistic 19%. Uh, That's fair. Okay. Informed 17%. What were they (laughs) informed upon? Huh? I have questions about 17% 17% of our country or so. Uh, also, and it, you wonder if it's the same group here, the tone of the debate was 83% negative. Uh, yes, that was the correct answer. This wasn't really an opinion question, to be honest. 17% positive? What? Who, what is this 17% of the country that thought it was a positive debate <laughs> that informed them on the issues? Huh?
1: Yeah. (laughs) So I think two things are true at once here, Sarah, as is often the case. Truth number one is that by certainly well outside the margin of error of the polls, uh, by statistically significant margin, but not overwhelming, that people believe that Joe Biden quote-unquote won the debate. And number two, it's not gonna change anything fundamental about the race. And then, well, I I can believe three things at once. And number three, therefore, that means in the macro sense, it's a Trump loss because of the two people, he had to change something fundamental. Um, But in going in hindsight, I guess why would anyone, and this is not to beat our own hobby horse, uh, why would anyone expect any dramatic change out of this?
2: Well, you know, the Trump campaign, I think, went in wanting to get to get under Biden's skin, to goad Biden into losing his train of thought and to get that sort of moment that they could push around on social media, they didn't need 90 minutes of a good debate performance or 90 minutes of a changed debate performance. They needed 89 minutes of anything and one minute that they could then have as this viral moment to push and put money behind on Facebook uh, and, and various platforms to reach their voters and their potential voters and get their voters turned out and pumped and ready to go. Uh, The problem is that didn't happen. And then you have to ask why that didn't happen. And I think um, even a bunch of Trump allies, including like Chris Christie, among others, who helped prepare the president for the debate, he was in fact so hot that he would interrupt Biden when Biden may have not been on a roll and basically save Biden. <laughs> right. So the things that could have changed the race that I think Trump went in as the strategy of how to change the race, he then undermined his own strategy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, that's exactly how I saw it. But I guess I think enough about the debate. Um, we are kind of debated out on that. If, if you're a faithful dispatcher, you have now heard the Dispatch Live on the debate, a dispatch podcast on the debate and the advisory opinions dipping the toe in the water on the debate. So I think we'll stop torturing you with the debate and let's, (laughs) let's move on to the constitution and the Supreme court. And let's do it. So Sarah, I, I have an overall theory about the impact of a six of a, a six Republican Appointee Court with Amy uh, Amy Coney Barrett on it, but I'm going to save it for the end. I'm excited. I'm, but um, w- what I thought would be fun is if we kind of ping ponged back and forth the doctrine, the key doctrines that uh, will be before, and the key issues that will be before the court, and how they will be decided differently, if differently at all, um, with a six three court compared to the 5-4 court that we had, you know, even a, a few short weeks ago, um, because there's going to be a lot of kind of headline hyperbole about the impact of Amy Coney Barrett. But I thought it might be interesting to like dive into some nitty gritty and sort of see what will change if anything. Um, so let me, let me go first. Um, I'm going to make a prediction that what the one of the areas where you will see the least change, one way or the other, is First Amendment jurisprudence. I think uh, when it comes to religious liberty and free speech, the margins with most of the cases again, and I'm going to caveat it with most of the cases have been so long, large and a lot of the consensus so long standing on the First Amendment that everything from free speech to religious liberty the court's not going to rule that differently under a Barrett with the Barrett than without Barrett. And the one potential caveat is I think it does make the outcome of the Philadelphia religious Liberty case coming up next term, which is the, uh, I believe Fulton versus Philadelphia, which is the, um, Catholic, uh, adoption agency case, a virtual foregone conclusion that it's going to see its religious Liberty vindicated. Uh, But I think it was going to win anyway before Justice Ginsburg. So I'm thinking if you're going to go down amendment by amendment, First Amendment, I don't think you're going to see much change. I think there was already a lot of court consensus. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, there's a uh, (laughs) there's a lot of projection onto Supreme Court nominees as well. Yeah you know, she clerked for Justice Scalia, she'll be in the mold of Scalia. Uh, Sure, maybe to some extent, but, you know, truly each of these people both are their own person, but also once they're on the court, develop their own jurisprudence separately from the past, and not because they were trying to fool people or something like that, but because being on the Supreme Court is a fundamentally different job than being on a circuit court. You're not trying to apply the Supreme Court precedent as faithfully as you possibly can. You are now supposed to think about that precedent itself. Um, and, uh, and it's just a totally different angle of entry into the law. So it's not surprising that it can take 10 years sometimes for that jurisprudence to evolve and make itself known. So I just think that's like an important caveat to start with as well, that, um, we won't know to some extent what the Barrett jurisprudential line is for a while on some things.
1: Yes, that's a great point. Great point. Um, What's your, what's your issue?
2: Well, so I was sent this article uh, from current affairs magazine written by a guy named Nathan Robinson, a Yale law grad. Uh, And he walks through some of her opinions and it's pretty frustrating we'll put the article in the show notes because I think it's actually a really good example of legal writing that you should be skeptical of. And I think um, it may be my favorite example of it now, which is somebody talks about a case. They talk about sort of the unfairness of the outcome of the case. Mm -hmm. And they don't talk about the legal issues in the case at all. And you're supposed to think, wow, this person is mean. Yeah, but this is that. like 3,000 words of that, David. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's moments where like you're like, oh, that does sound mean. And the case that I think is getting the most attention on the Amy Coney Barrett is a mean judge. It's like <laughs> a mean girl, but a judge. Yeah. Um, is this immigration case. Uh, because there's a lot of unfairness involved here and then Amy Coney Barrett as a judge sort of sides with the unfairness. Okay, so here are the facts of the case. Uh, a United States citizen marries a citizen of Yemen. Her last name is Ahmed. Uh, Ahmed applies to uh, for a visa to live in the United States. She follows all the correct process. She applies for her children as well. The consular office denies her application because, quote, she attempted to smuggle two children into the United States uh, that were not hers. Mm. She then provides all of this evidence that they were, in fact, her children, and, David, perhaps most importantly, that those two children died. Oh no! So after she applies for the visa, her two children drowned. It makes some local news. So she has their birth records, their vaccination records, and she has proof of their death as well. So that even if you think they weren't her children, it doesn't matter now because she no longer needs visas, um, for her, uh, deceased children. Nevertheless, they just denied the application and the, you know, judge Barrett threw out the case. And so what this guy writing writes is that, um, She said that it didn't matter whether the accusation was based on no evidence. It didn't matter that she could provide giant piles of counter evidence showing that the visa denial had been a mistake. Uh, It didn't matter if the officer had just made up the smuggling stuff out of whole cloth. Barrett wrote that because the consular office had cited a statute in denying the visa, the decision was, quote, facially legitimate and bona fide and therefore would not be reviewed by the court. Well, that sounds pretty mean.
1: (laughs) It sounds so mean.
2: But it doesn't go into what the precedent is that she is forced to apply about the deference that you give to these administrative agencies. And it's pretty funny, by the way, because obviously um, there are plenty of times where the liberal judicial philosophy wants enormous deference to administrative agencies. So you have to have at least some through line on what you want the jurisprudence to be and not just on the outcomes. And, uh, so, you know, that's an example where the legal jurisprudence is actually really uninteresting about whether there is uh, standing and whether there's a claim there. And yeah, that, because of that, there's sometimes really unfair stuff. But as I said, that's also very different than being on the Supreme court. She is expected to apply that precedent to this case when she's on the Supreme court. She can, if she would like to, um, just, you know, Write a dissent or a concurrence or a majority opinion, for that matter, saying that that precedent should no longer be the precedent, and we aren't going to defer to administrative agencies and their decisions uh, like that. But as a circuit judge, all this says to me is that you know she is a circuit judge that applies law in really unfair when even when it it seems uh, unjust, and that's actually generally what we want in circuit judges.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and, and one of the things that's interesting about it, and you mentioned it, this administrative agency deference, is sort of a longstanding, progressive legal position that there should be deference paid to the administrative state's interpretation of the statutes it's, it is it is empowered to enforce, and that this is sort of a conservative hobby horse, actually, to pay less deference to administrative agencies and kind of restore the balance of power, which... Actually brings me to an interesting point of the, uh, if Amy Coney Barrett is going to be a a Scalia clone, there are ways in which conservatives would not like that. Actually, now the way um, originalist jurisprudence and in, in conservative jurisprudence has evolved, for example, Scalia used to support the Chevron decision, which is one of which is the cornerstone decision surrounding. The establishment of judicial deference to the administrative state. Scalia uh, wrote the Employment Division v. Smith opinion, which just ripped the heart and lungs out of the free exercise clause, and is one of my least favorite judicial opinions. Period. Um, It's not my least favorite, but it's in it's in there. (laughs) Um, So I think there are ways in which there are some conservatives who hope she's not a exactly like Scalia. As much as we respect Scalia. All right, now here's another doctrine. Second Amendment. Yep. Now, if if you had to pick one single area where I think that you might actually see more court movement in a totally Justice Barrett regime, it's in the Second Amendment. And Although the reason not because, is because of, of
2: Justice Barrett. I right. see what your reasons are.
1: Well, I think the reasons are that for the... Essentially, there will now be confidence that if the court, if, if the Republican appointee majority decides and votes to take a Second Amendment case, that there will be some confidence in the outcome. And the reason these cases were not taken is that there was previously no confidence in the outcome. And, and in that sense, I think we'll see some cases taken. But Sarah, with a caveat. Okay. The caveat is I think if you are looking for sweeping decisions in the Second Amendment that will preclude things like a renewal of the assault weapons ban, my thinking is you're probably going to be disappointed because my thinking is the next cases the court takes in the Second Amendment are the quote unquote easy cases. Yes, the the one where it's you know a state that pretty much basically prohibits you from carrying a firearm outside the home that sort of allow for the keep ar- arms but not the bear arms part of the Second Amendment. So I think you'll see some of the easier cases coming next, and the harder ones we'll see. Um, but that's also I'm, probably
2: the way it should be. We you should take the easy cases first and define jurisprudence that way and wait on the hard cases as you uh, sort of see the impact uh, as these things percolate in the lower courts. Right. How are the lower courts supposed to make some of those decisions and let some of that percolate and have these circuit splits if you haven't even done the easy stuff?
1: You know, the assault weapons ban issue is going to be interesting because there is a very real possibility that if there is a Democratic majority Senate and they do away the filibuster, that you could see a revival of the Clinton era gun control legislation, which would immediately be challenged in court. Um, so you may end up having the Supreme Court taking it just because it's like the Obamacare case, a challenge to one of the most important pieces of of uh, legislation in a new administration. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. So that's my my next one, the second amendment.
2: Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing on that is that the, at least the, the purported reason why those cases haven't moved forward was because there was a lot of uncertainty around how the chief justice would decide some of those. And with Barrett, in theory, they'll feel a lot more confident granting cert on some of them. I agree they'll take the easy cases first. Um, and there's, of course, not a lot in Barrett's background to tell us how she would vote on those. So they're just right. assuming that they know her.
1: <laughs> Lots of assumptions going on here. Lots, Lots of, of assumptions. assumptions. And you know uh, what they say when you assume.
2: <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I have a great memory of a, uh, in seventh grade, this girl who was a bully to me, I said some, I must've used the word assume. And she was like, you know what they say when you assume, like, can you imagine a seventh grade girl saying that as a way to be mean to another girl? Like it's <laughs> looking back, it's pretty funny. <laughs> it like um, rocked my world. Cause I was like, that's so clever. Oh my God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so wait, what's your next one, Sarah?
2: Uh, criminal justice.
1: Mm, good. That was my next one. You're, yes. I notice you're skipping right over, right over the Third Amendment. Do you not care? <laughs>
2: <sighs> come on. Did I tell you about that tweet where the woman said, she's like, I uh, had this guy from the army come over to my apartment and we hooked up and he asked if he could spend the night. And I said, no, because I believe in the Third Amendment. <laughs> 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 oh, legal jokes. Yes, legal um, jokes. So I think that it's pretty clear that she is right down the middle on criminal justice stuff. And I think that when we talk about qualified immunity, which is going to be your hobby horse, that's probably not great for your hobby horse. Uh, So, for instance, this one's just like straight down the middle. It's a question over reasonable suspicion. And there are certain uh, shibboleths that police officers say in order to establish reasonable suspicion in these kinds of cases. And they tend to say that uh, they saw a bulge in the pocket. It was a high crime area. And uh, an officer inferred from the person's uh, flight when they ran away that they were fleeing um, because they knew they were in violation of the law. Yeah, she that there doesn't seem to be a lot of skepticism about what police officers are saying when they say that. Um, and reasonable suspicion is no, not anywhere close to qualified immunity, except that it's, um, it's totally up to the officer to tell you why they stopped someone. And you've got just got to take their word for it. And there's no real good way to not take their word for it because you're not there. Uh, and so in that case, I think we're just seeing her apply the law as it is. Not a lot of curiosity on, or not a lot of skepticism of police officers, and not a lot of curiosity on the underlying jurisprudence. But again, when you get to the Supreme Court, she can then say, reasonable suspicion, this is all kind of BS, you need more. But I don't think she will.
1: (laughs) Right. I I don't think that, there's nothing about her background that suggests that she'll be a revolutionary one way or the other on criminal procedure cases. Um, Unlike
2: Scalia, by the way.
1: Right. Right. Now, let me so let me ask you this because I have let me ask you two hot button questions. Um, Do you see any prospect that a oh, that a um court, a court with Amy Coney Barrett making that the sixth member of a Republican nominated majority would overrule Obergefell? No. No, me neither. But that's a. That is something I've been asked a ton about. And I think the prospect of that is z- zilch and zero.
2: I don't even know how a case would come up.
1: I-, I think the only way it could come up is if a state tried to repass or in- impose an existing same-sex marriage ban. And then that got challenged, you know, and then there was, you know, a challenge under Obergefell, but I don't even see a state doing that. Like I, I, I I, I just don't, I don't see it. So, okay. So that was one. I've gotten a lot of questions about that, believe it or not. And my answer has always been zero zilch. Nope. Not a, it's not going to happen. All right. Here's the other one. Is Roe going to live or die under this court?
2: Uh, Roe, first of all, Roe has turned into this I don't know, term that doesn't even mean what people think it means. It's just a phrase people throw out there. Nobody even applies Roe anymore. Roe doesn't Casey. exist. Is, yeah, Casey is mm-hmm. an actual question. Does Casey survive?
1: Does Casey survive?
2: Uh, I don't know that Casey survives in its current form, actually. I, I'm not sure that the, that the, the freakouts on that are totally wrong. What do you think?
1: Uh, I think Casey survives. You do. <laughs> yeah. I think it's in Casey its current survived.
2: iteration, undue burden. Do you think though, I guess when I say it doesn't survive maybe in its current form, you can sort of keep Casey alive and say, Yeah, we're applying the undue burden test, but the undue burden test doesn't mean what you think it means. It's gotta be a burden.
1: Bingo. So I think that's where I think that's where the play is in the joints because
2: <laughs> that's a that's a lot of play.
1: A lot of play in those joints. And so that's, you know, one of the interesting things to me, um, when Casey was decided, those of us in the pro life community were were pretty crushed because we thought we thought that Roe would that that the that the Casey court was going to strike down Roe and return the abortion issue to the states.
2: Boy, were you wrong about that.
1: Oh yeah. So <laughs> anyway. Very wrong. And then, so we're sitting there just like, what just happened? And a lot of my feminist friends were going, that's a bad decision. I don't like that decision. And I said, why? And they said, because the undue burden test, what does that even mean? What does it mean? A conservative judiciary can, that's a very malleable term. So a conservative judiciary can uphold quite a few restrictions and just say it's not an undue burden because undue is a word that is not self-defining in this context, and I think that's where that's where you might see some real movement on abortion jurisprudence. Is in these states that have passed restrictions, the states may not even ev- ever like be so bold as to say, "Please overturn Roe." They'll just say, "Please uphold this restriction. It's not an undue burden." And what you might end up having is a series of laws that are sort of ever narrowing the abortion right without getting rid of the abortion right in these states. Um, It's sort of how I can, that's how I would predict it going um, over the short to medium term.
2: What's interesting is that you wonder whether, (laughs) hindsight 2020, if you are a pro-abortion advocate, were you better off without Roe?
1: Yeah, that, that's a that's a really interesting question. And it actually goes back to... Um,
2: politically and legally, by the way. I think you could make an argument on both fronts. Legally and politically, you were better off if Roe hadn't been decided.
1: I think that's a very interesting counterfactual. And it's actually one that Justice Ginsburg raised in the early 1990s. Um... That would we be where we are now if Roe was less, as she called it, the the actual literal word she used was breathtaking. Yeah. If Roe was less breathtaking in scope. And that's a fascinating question. That's because a fascinating, imagine a
2: world in which you start with Casey. And actually, I think all of this turns out quite differently.
1: I would I would even say if it had been left. If it had been left primary... So what Ginsburg was advocating for in 1992 is you strike down the Texas laws as being overly restrictive without establishing a Any test. sweeping counter rule, a sweeping rule that, you know, the trimester structure, et cetera, et cetera, which would have still allowed for a lot of state regulation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very... That's one of those questions that we will... That ship sailed. <laughs> <laughs> That ship sailed. Okay, so we've talked about First Amendment, Second Amendment, Obergefell, Roe, criminal procedure, qualified immunity, Sarah. You knew I was going to raise it. You had to. Qualified immunity. Hobby horse. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to ride that hobby horse. What do you think?
2: I think this is the toughest one because it's... It's one where, as a circuit judge, you really do have to face... Like, she has no opportunity as a circuit judge to overturn qualified immunity. So you're not, like, reading tea leaves. You're reading, like, the little mites that might live on tea leaves. (laughs) And I don't think you have any particular... um, I, I don't think there's anything out there to really tell you what she'd do on qualified immunity, except for an overall sense of her age and life experience, and that qualified immunity is not the knee-jerk, of course we support qualified immunity, that it was in the conservative movement 20 years ago. And so that is the mite on the tea leaf floating around in the tea that I am reading. And it's a a very small and not very vociferous mite.
1: So can I do, uh, there's, We all know, we're all familiar with the term guilt by association. (laughs) Um, Can I do virtue by association? Yes. Which is sort of how, like, it's, this is how things tend to work out when you're analyzing jurisprudence a lot is because the judicial career track is one that often sort of puts people in an analytical box as opposed to sort of explaining their judicial philosophy very clearly. But anyway... Uh, so you end up evaluating someone's jurisprudence by saying, who do they hang out with? <laughs> Are they members of the Federalist Society? Or but she comes from a virtue by the Virtue by Association is she kind of, even though I'm evangelical and she's Catholic, she's kind of from my tribe of the religious the Christian conservative legal movement. And if there is a part of a conservative legal movement aside from libertarianism that is very dedicated to getting rid of qualified immunity, it's that very tribe. Uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, for example, has joined Amicus briefs asking for the end of qualified immunity, along with libertarians, along with the ACLU. And so, that's a thin read, Sarah. That's about the thinnest possible read. But I'll I'll hold on to it. I'll hold on to it until disproven.
2: You know what I'm going to put in the show notes, David, for you, what? for our listeners. Uh, <laughs> so my husband, Scott Keller wrote a paper on the history of qualified immunity and Jay Schweikert at Cato has responded, uh, to his paper. And there's this nice little conversation going on about how one could reimagine qualified immunity in sort of a Thomas-esque way, going back to the original understanding of when it came about, uh, roughly in 1871 and what was the, what was qualified immunity at common law pre-1871. And so I'm going to put that in our show notes. And uh, one wonders whether this could be an interesting path forward. And I am just saying that because he's my husband.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Outstanding. So wait a minute. Are you saying that your husband is pro-qualified immunity?
2: No. So that's the really interesting part of this is that qualified immunity at common law is a totally different thing than our messed up 1970s qualified immunity. And you could go back to common law qualified and absolute immunity and have a much clearer, better, uh, more fair, everything qualified immunity. And in Justice Thomas's uh, last uh, little note on the subject, he said, boy, I wish someone would go back and tell me the history of qualified immunity at common law. And my husband said, ah, paternity leave. I'll write a law review article.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That is fantastic. So I cannot wait to put it's coming, that in the show uh, notes. Out
2: in Stanford Law Review in the spring, but uh, I can put it in the show notes now.
1: Oh, well, that's awesome. I can't wait to read it. Um, So here, before we go to our guest, here's my overall assessment of Amy Coney Barrett. And that is that the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court imagine it as a big ocean liner and that each additional justice moves the rudder of the ocean liner a little bit but not nearly as much as the media says. And I think what the addition of Justice Barrett will do is keep the ocean liner generally on the course that it was, but it's just going to take more to move it from that course now. Like it's just kind of solidified. I I think that, let, let me put it this way. You, I think you will end the next couple of terms, assuming no other justices leave or depart, with the current court where I'm not so sure that your jurisprudence, one term, two term, three terms out from here, will be that different than it would have been. I think the, yeah. ma- the margins will be a little bit different.
2: Here's also something that's interesting when you think about Hellerstat, uh, and listeners remember that is the case back in 2015 on Texas's abortion restrictions where it's uh, 5-4 and Roberts is in the dissenting minority saying that he would have upheld Texas's abortion restrictions. Then you fast forward to this term Mm -hmm. and it's 5-4 where he says, look, I still think Hellerstadt was wrongly decided, but stare decisis. And I bring that case up because the thing that you won't ever, the counterfactual we won't be able to know is whether Roberts would flip sides if it were... uh, basically 4-4 four, four with him as the swing vote. He is actually a more reliable conservative voter when uh, basically it's already 5-4 the other way. So right. there you're, you're going to see these 6-3 cases and people are going to say, see, it wouldn't have mattered because they would have had Roberts anyway. And mm-hmm. like, ooh, that's not technically true. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that sort of goes back to the thing that we've said Um before, I think Justice Roberts would be a reliable seventh vote to overturn Roe.
2: <laughs> right.
1: There are circumstances right. where Justice Roberts will rule in a particular way when, the, when he knows the majority is sufficient enough. And yeah, I so do think, I think that you're, is a fair...
2: I think you're exactly right that Amy Coney Barrett will not be as revolutionary as the left fears or the right wishes. Yeah. Because no justice really is. Because it's right. one vote.
1: Yeah. And also, they're human beings, and they're not always predictable. See Justice Gorsuch in the Bustak decision. Yep. That's
2: right. Things happen. Your, your right. world opens up. You're no longer a horse with those nice little blinders. Now, all of a sudden, you have to see the whole field and make decisions accordingly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, let's move on. And I'm excited about our guest, Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute. And Sarah, please introduce Ilya.
2: And we've got Ilya Shapiro. He is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Most importantly, I would say, maybe in order, we'll we'll do a three, two, one importance here. Number three, Ilya clerked on the Fifth Circuit, the best circuit, the <laughs> premier circuit. Uh, He clerked for Judge Jolly, which we'll forgive him for. I mean, it's no Edith Jones, but I would say that Edith Jones might say that Judge Jolly was her favorite judge, so that should count for something.
0: (laughs) Jolly is the, you know, the the man behind the woman.
2: (laughs) Uh, Coming in number two, Ilya did not go to Harvard Law School. (laughs) We won't even, like... Because I I got a better
0: offer. I went to the University of Chicago Law School.
2: (laughs) Perfect. And number one... Ilya must, uh, I don't know, you must have a a certain run of good luck because you have a book out called uh, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court that has come out like right on top of a judicial confirmation battle of the century. So congrats on having great timing.
0: Thank you. The publisher had to pay extra for that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I, we have lots of things to talk about, but I do want to dive in on the book first. So I, and I want to know all sorts of things that you found interesting or new or that you didn't know while writing it. But there's there's this paragraph. Historically, the Senate has confirmed fewer than 60 percent of Supreme Court nominees under divided government as compared to just under 90 percent when the president's party controlled the Senate. Timing matters too. Over 80% of nominees in the first three years of a presidential term have been confirmed, but barely more than half in the fourth year. Uh, did Mitch McConnell write this paragraph? Did you, <laughs> does he have it tattooed on his person somewhere?
0: <laughs> uh, well, I mean, if he wants to tweet it out, that would help my book sales. But uh, I mean, it's it's politics all the way down at, at base. I mean, this is the number one thing I learned about this book, which I started writing and I started proposing uh, to publishers after the Kavanaugh hearings when I, I really wanted to find out, you know, uh, has it ever been better than where we are now? How do we get here? What role has politics played? I mean, George Washington had a nominee rejected. So I mean, this has been a thing from the very beginning. Uh, and yeah, if uh, united versus divided government is a huge thing, particularly in a presidential election year, um, we've had, this is now the 30th. It's not like unprecedented to have a vacancy arise in a presidential election year. This is the 30th time uh, 19 of them under united government, 17 of those 19 resulted in confirmations, 10 times in divided government, only once was there a confirmation. So just historically, without arguing about who's a hypocrite or, you know, what the power play is, but just uh, this is this is what gets done.
2: David.
1: So, um, you know, one thing that I like uh, is your dive into history and- like if you're a listener and you're somebody who thinks that Supreme Court contra- that the Supreme Court was really relatively uncontroversial until Robert Bork, um, or Supreme Court nominations confirmations were relatively uncontroversial until Robert Bork, uh, what would you say sort of were um, f- key, the key flashpoints before Bork that Americans need to know about to because you, you just, in your answer, you said something that's interesting. This has been politics from the beginning. Um, what are some moments pre bork that you think really illuminate how in, while some things have changed, some
0: things have not. Um, well, I mentioned that Washington had a nominee rejected. John Adams, uh, lost his reelection bid to Thomas Jefferson and then nominated and had confirmed in the lame duck, John Marshall, the great chief who established the court uh, into what it was in the early republic, as well as signing the Midnight Judges Act, creating all these judgeships for, for him to, to fill and to thwart uh, the Democratic Republicans led by Jefferson. And that was the origin of Marbury versus Madison, a dispute over judicial review of the uh, 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 giving confirmations, uh, certifications of, of, of judgeships. Uh, Samuel Chase, uh, an early justice, was impeached. After that Jefferson Adams uh, election, I mean, slavery was a huge deal between Jack between Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln. Only eight of 21 uh, uh, nominees were confirmed because of debates over the realignments within the Democratic Party, slavery, all these different issues. You know, people ask me what I think the most controversial nomination of all was, hoping that I'll pick between Bork, Kavanaugh, Thomas. I'll go to 1916, Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish nominee, but even more controversially, uh, a big crusading progressive uh, nominated by Woodrow Wilson in that uh, election presidential election year. It took nearly five months for his uh, confirmation process to run. He was ultimately confirmed by a slightly wider margin than some of the more recent controversies. But for the first time, Uh, the Senate had public hearings on the nomination. It's not like that started initially. They don't have to do it. They started it in 1916, but it was considered unseemly for Brandeis himself, or the nominee himself, to testify, so he didn't do that. And wait, there's more. After he was confirmed, uh, another justice, Charles Evans Hughes, resigned to run against Woodrow Wilson in the presidential election. So if you think 2020 (laughs) or 2016 was just this unprecedented mashup of, politics in the Supreme Court, I'll see that and I'll raise you
2: 1916. I love (laughs) before 1882, seven nominees declined to serve.
1: (laughs) That is
2: (laughs) (laughs) like that tells you what, uh, you know, at, at sort of the beginning fits and starts of this country that the Supreme Court was perhaps seen a little differently than it is now. I
0: mean, who would want that job, especially in the early days where you literally had to ride circuit, go on horseback to the far flung courts and and help out with that. And for a long time, it was just not prestigious. I mean, it would be more prestigious to be on your state Supreme Court, say, or to be a a fancy lawyer in Boston or Philadelphia or Richmond or what have you. Uh, uh, And so, you know, the way communications worked, uh, a lot of people uh, or several people in our history were nominated or even confirmed before they learned that they were nominated, and then they said, "Why would I want to do this?" It was, uh, you know, the the, the courtroom uh, was in some basement and in the, in the Capitol and the old Senate. Uh, it was just a dreary job. I mean, you know, why would you want to do that? So yeah, things have changed a little bit since uh, 1882 was the last time uh, Roscoe Conkling, the big New York uh, party yeah. boss, declined.
2: Really,
1: well, you know, one of my favorite uh, founding era stories is actually the Midnight Judges story, and. It really sort of sets the stage for how quickly the revolutionaries set to some pretty intense squabbling early in the American Republic. I mean, the same generation that enacted the First Amendment uh, also passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, and the Midnight Judges uh, go go a bit into that. I mean, it was it was in some ways at the lower court level the first court pack. Um, was it 16 circuit, circuit court judges nominated, confirmed, and commissioned in the lame duck session uh, that Jefferson just flips out about as soon as he gets into office? Walk so, us that's through that right. A and, and
0: a whole bunch more magistrates and, and justices mm-hmm. of the peace and all of these things. When there weren't that many judges altogether and you, you add a whole slew, uh, that's a big deal. And, you know, that was the, that was the original court packing and it was trying to thwart Jefferson's power. Uh, the, the 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 that same uh, act would have reduced you know you talk about packing the lower courts but it would have reduced the Supreme Court to five from the original six at its next vacancy to prevent Jefferson from appointing any justices. Then when the Democratic Republicans took over, uh, they restored the court to six. That sort of led to Justice Samuel Chase's uh, opposition and eventual impeachment, but not uh, removal. And then towards the end of Jefferson's tenure, a seventh seat was added trying to temper Chief Justice John Marshall's federalist uh, proclivities. Unsuccessful, Marshall was so persuasive that even Jefferson's nominees came under his sway. Eight, the night seats were added 30 years later under Andrew Jackson to allow him to reshape the court. And that led to ultimately to uh, Dred Scott, So, uh, you know, (laughs) court packing in our history, it's not just FDR in 1937, but historically court packing has not really been a good thing for a country or, or for the party proposing it for that matter.
2: When we talked about pre-Bork, you went like real pre-Bork, like (laughs) back to the founding pre-Bork, which is technically pre-Bork. It's pre-Bork. It is. Uh, but can we go, let's say more contemporaneous pre-Bork, walk us through how we get to Bork.
0: Sure, uh, and in fact, my book uh, is like Gaul divided into three parts. Uh, the first part <laughs> is the I call it the past, the history, really the founding through 1968, which of course is a pivotal year for American culture and politics, but also for law, also for for the Supreme Court. Uh, and then so the second part is 68 to Kavanaugh, and then the third part is. Reforms. What have we learned? Where do we go from here? But 1968 is so pivotal because another presidential election year, another vacancy. Uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren, the uh, the controversial, very significant Eisenhower uh, appointee. Right. Uh, Ike said that he'd only made two mistakes in his presidency and they're both sitting on the Supreme Court. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Warren, especially uh, Brennan. I don't know if it was. I mean, I'm sure he was disappointed by Bill Brennan's jurisprudence, but there was no surprise that Brennan was a was a was a progressive left winger on the Supreme Court in New Jersey, and uh, Eisenhower appointed him also a month before the election in in 1956 uh, to shore up his northeastern metropolitan Catholic support. But anyway, 1968, Warren announces his. Retirement, uh, the very lame duck Lyndon Johnson, right, the self anointed name duck, decided not to run for re-election because of uh, Vietnam unpopularity, uh, and decides to elevate Justice Abe Fortas, and then nominate the uh, kind of a Texas crony, uh, Homer Thornberry, to replace uh, Fortas as an associate justice, and runs into a buzzsaw. saw. Uh, Fortas had given some speeches for which he didn't declare his payment. Now it looks kind of uh, you know small beer. Uh, but at the time, huge ethical concerns, bipartisan opposition in the Democratic-controlled Senate. Uh, some people call it the first filibuster of a, of a nominee, but uh, Fortas never even had uh, 50 declared votes, never went to a vote on cloture and all those kind of technicalities. And the opposition was bipartisan. So anyway, that seat never gets filled. It stays open or Warren never leaves the court, really, uh, until... Ah, uh, Nixon's elected, and then Nixon gets to fill that seat with uh, with Warren Burger, uh, leading to further escalations, and uh, uh, Nixon ends up having two nominees rejected. Uh, and away we go. Well,
1: you know that brings me to I, I think what is uh, really surprisingly for me, because uh, so many things, and I've even been guilty of this myself, uh, and even recently, sort of starting some of the recent history with discussing Bork. Um. But when I was growing up, the words that you would hear a Republican spit out every bit as venomously as maybe I don't know—is this a good analogy, Sarah? Um, a University of Texas Austin spits out the word Oklahoma like a, <laughs> UT, a UT Austin <laughs> fan spits out Oklahoma. Um, certainly, as venomously as a, a C- Alabama Crimson Tide fan spits out Auburn Tigers, is Warren Court. and you know all that's what I heard growing up Warren the Warren court the Warren court and you know one of the things that I uh that I had I've done recently is sort of go back and look at the Warren court's jurisprudence and holy smokes Ilya (laughs) you know when you look at sort of the in the 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 court coming into American life in a way that is very front and center it's really hard to start the story with bork, uh, at least the modern story. It seems to me the modern story starts with the Warren court. um and you know, so I just wanted to sort of get your get your thoughts on the Warren Court. is that are those words you spit out as venomously so the, the as modern old court republic? really,
0: I think, starts with uh, fDr and not necessarily court packing, although that's sort of part of the overall atmosphere, but with the what legal scholars call the revolution of nineteen thirty seven when uh, the Supreme Court started upholding this, the kinds of uh, federal expansions, New Deal programs that it had been rejecting. Uh, also, sometimes called the switch in time that saved nine, when Justice another Justice Roberts, Owen Roberts, uh, started flipping. Although uh, uh, you know, some people uh, the the myth is that he was doing that because of the pressure from the court packing scheme, but that's that's not true uh, at all. Uh, things were going in that direction for for other reasons, but uh, that is really the origin of the divergence in modern legal theory, the progressives versus now what we call the originalists. At one point it was either conservative or the judicial restraint school or the strict constructionist was how they mm-hmm. talked about it and how Nixon talked about it in the late 60s and, and the 70s. Uh, and so, you know, what's different, this goes into what's different now if if I've said that politics has always been a part. So is there anything different now? Uh, and what's different is that you have divergent interpretive theories mapping onto partisan preference at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted than they've been since at least the Civil War. Uh, so certainly the Warren Court is part of that divergence and part of the uh, forcing the the reaction and the birth of the modern conservative legal movement. But it goes uh, it goes before that, uh, and you know it doesn't it doesn't become visible until a little bit in 1968, you know, much more with with Bork. You know, also point to Roe v. Wade, right, which was 1973, Mm -hmm. which was 14 years before Bork, but it took a while for the abortion issue even to rear its head in these battles. Um, The next couple of nominees after Roe v. Wade, John Paul Stevens in 75 under Ford, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor in 81 under Reagan, Uh, Roe was not that big an issue in their confirmations. Heck, even uh, Antonin Scalia and and William Rehnquist being elevated in 1986, the year before Bork, um, you know, Roe abortion was not that big of a concern. There were other controversies. And of course, Scalia was confirmed uh, unanimously because he was an Italian-American. Talk about identity politics there. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's a lot of surprises and you can tell kind of this mythologized or streamlined story, but yeah, we can talk about the war in court, sure, and that, that drove a lot of concerns, both in terms of the Jim Crow South and the response to Brown v. Board and desegregation orders, as well as things later in the 60s, and especially the late 60s with the revolution in criminal procedure uh, that uh, the Borks of the time were responding to in terms of the judicial activism and, and that sort of thing. But, but there's different parts of the story, and you know every decade provides a, a new escalation, really.
2: So let's move to the confirmation hearings themselves, which I think is created by Bork's failed nomination that all the other uh, uh, nominees at that point are looking and saying, what went wrong there? I don't want to do that. And it turns into what Justice Kagan, before she was Justice Kagan, called a vapid and hollow charade, which I think is, uh, sums it up nicely. Uh, how did we get to the, uh, the hollow charade?
0: Yeah, and of course, when she was in the hot seat, the shoe was on the other foot, Mister Bond. Right? All of a sudden, she saw the the wisdom in in pursuing the hollow, vapid charade. Uh, so Bork, um, uh, you're right. This was the first. I think the first televised hearings were, Sandra Day O'Connor, but Bork was really the first widespread uh, televised and used in the in the evening news and 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 that sort of thing. Uh, and it was the first all out attack based on ideology and twisting someone's words. Um, the Republicans were caught on their back foot, the Reagan White House, uh, and the strategy they pursued and that Bork himself pursued uh, were not very effective. The, the, they tried to position Bork as neither a liberal nor a conservative, just calls him like he sees him, uh, just like Lewis Powell, the centrist uh, swing boat that he was uh, replacing. Uh, but forty five minutes after the nomination came down, Ted Kennedy went to the well of the Senate and uh, you know, gave this parade of hor- horribles this calumny about Robert Bork's America and how bad it would be. And uh, it went downhill from there. and And Bork did not uh, pursue the the tried and true what's now, the tried and true method of talking a lot without saying anything. Instead, he was the academic that he had been for much of his career and tried to have these kind of turgid, uh, intellectual responses as Senator Paul Simon, not the singer, but the Illinois Senator on the Judiciary Committee, uh, wrote, he tried to score debaters points rather than get votes. And, and that was not effective. And so a few years later when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, was in the hot seat, she, uh, 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 uh patterned the, uh, the pincer movement of, uh, not talking about specifics because they might come before her and not talking in generalities because judges should deal in, uh, uh, in practicalities. Uh, and that's been the rubric, uh, the model going forward. Um, uh, you know, it's to the point where, as I write in my book, uh, I've come to the conclusion, at least for the Supreme court, that given the information and in the paper trail that's available on all these nominees instantly over the internet, the public hearings do more harm than good to our discourse. We don't learn anything about the nominees. We don't learn that much about the law. And all it is is softballs by the same party as the president and attempts at gotcha moments or getting B roll for their campaign videos uh, from the other side. So, well, one point that you
2: (laughs) make that I thought was really well done is you credit that uh, the drop off in substantive judicial philosophy discussions, the, the Ginsburg pincher move future and its evolution, and if people have perfected it, with actually why we're getting more personal. Attacks on nominees because they can't attack them on ideology anymore because they're not going to answer those questions. And so instead, you're left with the only way to score points, so to speak, at a confirmation hearing is to find those non-ideological personal uh, you know, something, something else to get at a nominee.
0: Well, it's trying to make them look outside the mainstream or or weird in some way. And actually, um, you know, if senators are honest about their judicial philosophy and, and want to say that this person is bad and wouldn't do damage to the rule of law and the constitution. I think that's great. And that, that's where the debate, uh, should be. I have no problem with senators voting against a nominee they think would be, uh, would be bad, uh, based on judicial philosophy. And though that, yeah, again, because of the divergence of theories that those, um, battles are going to be fraught because of that. Uh, but yeah, it's not, not only that, you know, in the past, all the attacks would be on ethics or on, um, you know, you're from the wrong faction of the party, or or uh, don't uh, comply with uh, regional preferences, or something like that. Uh, now, the real battle is about judicial philosophy, but the phony war and kind of the, the above the water in terms of the iceberg is is yeah, trying to make uh, nominees look uh, look weird or or deranged or or have these these personal attacks.
1: Well, and it's also one what reason why, uh, especially those conservatives who think that when they vote for a president and then they receive a nominee, a nominee is, is gets onto the bench, that think that what's happening is they're getting conservative bot 9,000 getting up there who's going to just vote the way they want to vote. Well, the reality is what's emerged, you know, and this is my perception, is there's sort of a judicial career track now. So because Ilya, as you noted, you know, Bork goes there and he says, okay, Let's have this conversation about judicial philosophy, let's, which turned him into a folk hero, but did not turn him into a justice. Um, that there is a judicial career track in which you can't really pin people down on their, all their writings. And so what you're then doing is you're pinning them down on their affiliations. So we're going to assume we're going to know how Amy Coney Barrett's going to rule because she addressed the Alliance Defending Freedoms Blackstone Fellowship five times. Uh, which makes her less than half as conservative as me, because I've addressed the Blackstone Fellows probably 14 times, but <laughs> nobody's counting, counting really. So we're looking at affiliations: were you in the Federalist Society? Were you in? Who did you speak to? But a lot of the actual writing um, is much more analytical than it is anything else, and and you know I think that means that we're nominating and confirming people who. We really, truly just presume we know what they think rather than knowing what they think. But there's an earth, too, in which, for example, Ilya, you would be like an ideal judicial candidate with your qualifications and your record of, you know, uh, your record of advocating for for a particular kind of jurisprudence. Uh, Of annoying both parties
0: at different times. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you'd go up there and you'd have it out about your philosophy. Um, but yeah, I, I, this judicial career track kind of troubles me, honestly.
0: Well, the thing is there are asymmetries as well. Uh, I mean, for one thing, there have only been four, uh, democratic appointed, uh, justices in the last 50 years since 1968. Um, and so, uh, and there, and there's, uh, much more room for error, if you will, or less worry, uh, among Democrats because the legal profession skews left and whatever broad legal philosophy they might have, whether they're pragmatists or, living constitutionalists or Breyer's active liberty or uh, the, the purpose of the statute, whatever kind of theory, they, they all tend to end up in the same place without fail in the major controversies, which you can't say that about the right because there's a difference between the judicial restraint school and minimalism and incrementalism versus originalism. And how do you look at stare decisis and uh, all these, you know, the, the importance of history are deferring to Law enforcement, deferring to government in other ways, and you see the kind of the the, the intellectual diversity on the Republican-appointed uh, uh, justices. Now uh, it's kind of funny. Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Whitehouse, who's on his you know crusade to talk about the corrupt cor- corrupt court, and talks about the Roberts five, but the Roberts five has you know diverges all over the place. Whereas the the Ginsburg four um, uh, the late Ginsburg four, uh, was marched, uh, in, in lockstep. And you see that in terms of the reception of the nominees, those that get attacked personally or made to look like extremists tend to be Republican appointees. Um, uh, you know, Merrick Garland, uh, was not attacked for being extreme. That was a process argument, very controversial, of course, but it was a process argument about who gets to fill the seat and when, and, and all of that. And, you know, I think the ship has sailed, but I think the Democrats would have been actually more effective now not uh, attacking anything about Amy Coney Barrett, just like the Republicans didn't attack Garland, just saying, look, she's perfectly nice, whatever. We might disagree with her on certain things, but it's not about her. It's about this, uh, you know, shouldn't fill the seat so close to the election. They might've gotten uh, some Barrett supporters to then vote for Biden or Democratic senatorial candidates. But anyway, there are these asymmetries, both in terms of how Republican versus Democratic appointed justices perform on the court and in terms of how, Democratic and Republican senators uh, treat nominees.
2: Before you came on the pod today, David and I discussed how Amy Coney Barrett is likely to shift the court. Do you have thoughts, feelings to share?
0: Well, most importantly, she will make John Roberts the superfluous man, the sixth vote (laughs) rather than the median vote, uh, rather than the deciding vote. I I wouldn't call John Roberts a swing. He's not like a true moderate like Kennedy who could go in different directions, uh, when he deviates, quote unquote, it's because he's thinking about his strategy and how to position the court and that sort of thing. So now you could get a, um, I guess for lack of a better term, I'll call it a, a principled majority, without having to think about uh, which way to tack in order to play the long game or, or uh, you know, whatever it is that that, that Roberts uh, has been doing. And so even beyond, um, you know, maybe changing directions on. Uh, you know, some abortion regulations like the one that was uh, taken up this past term uh, being uh, invalidated now will be upheld um, even beyond things like that. I think that kind of the dynamic, and the types of opinions you're going to get from the court uh, are going to be less uh, head scratching, less splitting the baby.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that overall. I, I do wonder, you know, one is that you did bring up, there's two things you brought up that, let, let me start with one strand. You said There's been four Democratic nominees in how many years? 50. 50 years. So I think if you could describe Democratic frustration with the Supreme Court, that one sentence almost does it. Um, And that's not the same ratio that we have had. uh, You know, we've had multiple Democratic presidents in the last 50 years, but only four nominees and it's really interesting how sort of the ram- randomness of the, when these judicial nominations come open is has really influenced sort of who feels alienated from the court. And it's obviously quite clear that the Democrats feel extraordinarily alienated. And four nominees in 50 years is probably a, one of the foundational reasons why.
0: I mean, I, I'm sure they'd be much more alienated if it weren't for Stevens and Souter and Brennan and <laughs> uh, and all the rest of the Republican nominees, which are to the left of uh, many of the Democratic ones, you know, Byron White was a Democratic appointee, and and he was uh, to the right on on a lot of things. Um, but look, um, Justice Ginsburg could have retired in in 2013 when the Democrats had the Senate under, under President Obama, and, and she didn't. So, you know, but but you're right. There is that frustration, and, and at the at bottom, it's it's a matter of uh, it's a matter of politics. Um, uh, president Carter didn't get any Supreme court nominees, but as a consolation, the, the Congress, uh, ra- uh, uh rapidly expanded, uh, uh, the lower courts. And that's for that matter is why the ninth circuit is so, uh, to the left. It's a historical function of that expansion, not a, not a mm-hmm. geographic reason.
1: So the other question is, um, so you, I think you, you laid out, uh, nicely, the fact that there are differences in what you might broadly call conservative jurisprudence, that uh, we always think of these things as blocks, 5-4, maybe now a new 6-3 block. Um, but I don't see the conservative, the, the Republican nominees as a block in many ways. How would you parse the five and now about to be six uh, justices in their judicial philosophy?
0: Sure. Um well Thomas is uh, the most uh pure historical originalist I guess I'd say with a uh, uh, very weak if if any existing uh stare decisis I don't think he's ever met an erroneous precedent he wouldn't want to uh overturn. Um Alito uh is uh more law and order oriented um uh, similar to Thomas in result in a lot of uh, places, but uh, um, a little different on certain criminal justice issues or First Amendment that, that involves uh, uh, certain uh, traditional law and order concerns, I guess, of, of, of Republicans. Um, Kavanaugh is uh, definitely an originalist and a textualist, very, very historically uh, backed. Uh, also uh, has some pragmatism or some caginess to him. So he's somewhere between Uh, a Roberts and a Thomas or a Gorsuch. Gorsuch is kind of the the purest natural rights, natural law um, uh, approach to his originalism and very strict uh, textualism. Um, Probably the most libertarian uh, of the justices, uh, the most classical liberal, uh, even even more accurately uh, stated. And Roberts is a minimalist and a judicial restraint guy, uh, more than any broad ranging interpretive theory. Definitely a conservative. I don't think he's you know, quote unquote, grown in office to the left or anything like that, but uh, especially as the chief and the the youngest chief uh, when he when he assumed uh, that post in 2005 since John Marshall uh, and the first median vote as chief. Well, since Earl Warren, a couple of years. But at that point, the court was so to the left, the median vote didn't matter so much, really, since the, uh, since the 30s. So that's significant. And now uh, Amy Barrett is going to be basically like Scalia, uh, maybe mm-hmm. a little softer on Starry decisis, but you read her stuff and it's like Scalia, whether you talk about the structural constitution, whether you talk about the second amendment or whether you talk about criminal justice, where Scalia would often, uh, get together with, uh, with Ruth Ginsburg or, or others, uh, for kind of a, a, principled defense of the fourth or sixth amendments. So, um, you know, a lot of intellectual diversity there.
1: So, um, two qu- qu- uh, questions regarding things we've already talked about in the pod. Uh, What does this mean, do you think, a Barrett nomination for Second Amendment jurisprudence? And what does this mean for my hobby horse, Qualified Immunity?
0: On the Second Amendment, I think it means we'll finally have some Second Amendment jurisprudence because, of course, the (laughs) the court hasn't taken a Second Amendment case uh, or hasn't decided one since Heller, since the very first one in the modern era where it ruled that there was an individual right protected by the Second Amendment. Two years later, McDonald versus Chicago, that was a 14th Amendment case extending the right uh, to the states, but it wasn't about the scope of the Second Amendment. And, you know, this past term, everyone thought that when they finally took a case after a decade, presumably because Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy and thus uh, those on the right could be sure of uh, of how he would vote, uh, but uh, uh, that ended up being uh, moot and uh, presumably because of something that Roberts told his colleagues. They declined ten cert petitions, going every which, presenting every which issue uh, of this. Now I think they will take a, a Second Amendment case and start fleshing out exactly not even what you know what what kind of rights are protected, but uh, how lower courts should uh, should apply, should evaluate challenges uh, based on the Second Amendment. Qualified immunity—it's um, hard to predict because there's this cross-ideological agreement. Um, at least based on amicus briefs supporting cert petitions, that something needs to be done to this judicial made doctrine. And by the way, that was made by the Warren court as well uh, mm-hmm. as kind of a consolation to expanding criminal procedure rights uh, in the 60s. They Then they, they thought, okay, well, we'll toss a bone to law enforcement by saying they can't be sued in their personal capacity unless there's clearly established law to the contrary. And that's been blown out of proportion uh interestingly justice thomas was the only one who dissented from denial of cert petitions both in the slew of second amendment and qualified immunity cases this past term and those denials came another trivia question the same day that boss talk came down so that was uh, a huge uh, news day for us uh, legal nerds of course uh but who knows uh, uh, justice uh well soon to be presumably justice barrett has some qualified immunity cases and she's not uh um, she's not against uh, denying qualified immunity. There's a famous case of a detective who falsified an affidavit for a probable cause a requirement, causing a guy to languish in prison for, for two months, uh, and she denied qualified immunity correctly uh, there. So I think I think it'll probably come back into play. Uh, it was probably unfortunate that these petitions came to a head right when we had um, uh, people demonstrating in the streets, uh, the black lives matter protests and and all that. So John Roberts probably thought it was not an opportune time for the court to stick its head into that, but I think it's going to happen in future.
2: Okay. You also address in your book, potential fixes, solutions, lowering the temperature ideas about the court, including term limits, uh, something that's been mentioned a lot, Recently, I think, is this idea of ensuring that every president gets two picks to the court by rotating out other justices and that basically every justice would really be a circuit court judge who then has the opportunity perhaps to fold up to the Supreme Court for a certain number of years and then they just end up back down on their circuit and continue about their merry way after their term is done. What do you make of all of these various options?
0: Well, term limits is the one that's gotten discussed most often historically, going back to Thomas Jefferson versus Alexander Hamilton. In, in modern times, whenever there there are too many octogenarians on the court or there hasn't been turnover in a while, uh, this gets uh, thrown out again. Uh, Stephen Calabresi, one of the co-founders of the Federal Society, uh, and his uh, Northwestern Law School colleague, Jim Lindgren, uh, wrote the definitive uh, article in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy about 15 years ago, on term limits, and they convinced me, this is the reform I'm most amenable to, this 18-year term, every two years there'd be a vacancy. That would regularize when we had vacancies, It would also crystallize for voters that when they pick a president uh, or vote for senators, they're definitely affecting uh, the composition of the Supreme Court. Uh, And so that would get rid of politically timed retirements or these morbid death watches over uh, octogenarian justices. What it would not do is change the ideological balance of the court, decrease its power or significance in our lives. So we have to be realistic of, uh, you know, even if it would be healthy and increase public confidence, it wouldn't change kind of a lot of the reasons why we have these these big clashes. And it would take a constitutional amendment. There's, there are some clever academics who uh, suggest, uh, and there's a, a bill that was just introduced in the House to this effect, that if you just make uh, the most senior justices who are beyond 18 years Uh, literally senior justices who still get their pay and are the accoutrements of being a justice but aren't necessarily on the court, then that will satisfy the constitutional requirement. I don't buy that. Um, So I do think that there would be a constitutional requirement to be an an amendment. And if we have the political unity or will for that amendment, then then maybe there wouldn't be the underlying uh, uh, dissension uh, anyway. The other proposals, whether it's expanding the size of the court or having this kind of lottery among circuit judges that you mentioned or uh, here's a real clever one that Pete Buttigieg uh, glommed onto during the primaries, that you'd have five explicitly Republican justices, five explicitly Democratic ones, and then five that would have to be unanimously agreed upon by the the partisan justices. I mean, how you depoliticize institution by making it more explicitly partisan, uh, you know, I'm not smart enough to figure that one out. So, I mean, at the end of the day, all of these proposals are, you know, tinkering how hearings work or what have you. Uh, at the end of the day, this is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, And the Titanic is not the process. It's the ship of state, because the problem fundamentally uh, is the product, is the fact that you have centralized power in Washington and within Washington is skewing away from Congress deciding political controversies, but punting it all to the executive branch of the administrative agencies, which then get sued and the courts uh, decide all that. So, you know, it took us decades to get to where we are. And I have no magic bullet or overnight solutions. It'll, you know, rebalancing our constitutional order, reinforcing the separation of powers and, and federalism so that uh, the court isn't deciding so many key issues for such a large and diverse uh, country as ours. That's, that's the only way that we're gonna dissipate this toxic cloud. Uh, you know, I have neither, I'm realistic about this probability uh, nor, you know, and also I realize it would take a, a long time for us to get there.
1: So- um- Thank you. And especially thank you for ending by singing my song about federalism. That is,
2: <laughs>
1: I, I I have been, you know, I think you use a phrase, correct me if I'm wrong, let California be California and Texas be Texas. That's I, mine. I've been using that except it's let Tennessee be Tennessee because of course, well, see, there's a third
0: Tennessee. one, depending on where I'm speaking, I'll say let California and let Texas and the third one will be like wherever I'm speaking at any given moment. And so that goes, yeah, well.
1: there, there you go. So, we usually end with a culture question. And so I've got a culture question for you. Um, are you watching Cobra Kai on Netflix? And if not, why not?
0: Yeah, my wife and I watched that about a month ago. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, like, yes. uh, really enjoyed the 80s flashbacks and, and all that. Just well produced as well. So looking forward to season three.
1: Yeah, no. see, that's the right answer, Sarah. Why is it so hard for you to say, I have? E- I'm either watching or have watched it?
2: I had a nightmare about it. I haven't even seen a, a trailer for this thing, and because of you, David, it's now in my nightmares. Thank you.
1: I'm only and, in season and you, know, one you want to know
0: another culture thing. My wife and I are having uh, our first date night tomorrow night in a long, long time, and we're going to a drive-in movie. Uh, very Ugh. exciting.
2: What movie? Fant- what are you going to
0: see? Uh, Tenet, the the Christopher Nolan uh, thriller.
2: <laughs> Good luck.
0: <laughs> no, it's amazing. It's amazing. No, not that. Just,
2: it's seeing it in a drive-in where the sound already is maybe not the best.
0: I think it goes through your speakers. I think it's broadcast FM oh, right. or something.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's different I'm now. You don't put sure a little th-
0: box
1: in your window. Yeah, that's right. probably better. Yeah, yeah. No, may, you might even hear it better. I sat on like maybe. the fifth row in one of these big D Dolby IMAX theaters. And I would describe the sound as a physical assault. Um, but it was very cool. I just needed to think about it for a while when I got out of the theater and I'm still thinking about it. So I need to see it maybe two or three more times, but, but (laughs) Ilya, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And thank you listeners for listening to the advisory opinions podcast. Please go to Apple iTunes and give us a rating and feedback. Um, I've been reading some of your comments and some of them are pretty amusing. Uh, they can be as amusing, amusing as you want them to be as long as you add five stars at the end of it. That's the part that really makes it nice. Uh, but anyway, thank you for listening and please And your listeners
0: to- should add fat five stars to their Amazon review of my book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations in the Politics of America's Highest Court. Exactly right. Uh, thank you, Ilya. And thank you guys for listening.